This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Some that are really pushing the boundaries of what patient population be eligible for an ambulatory case. We're hearing that instead of looking for indications or patient selection criteria, they're starting to move to a mindset of focusing on contraindications, almost assuming that all patients can be done potentially in an ambulatory setting, and then looking for reasons why they would not be appropriate. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Drin, and today we have the next installment in a great series of service line conversations. Today, we get to talk orthopedics. We usually spend a lot of time talking about knee replacement when we talk orthopedics, but we're not going to go there today. We're going to talk about some other opportunities where cost and quality, especially as we shift to the outpatient setting, are pointing us in some new directions that haven't got as much attention in the past. To help me do that today, I have Riota Tirada from SG2 and Joe Tomorrow from Vizient. We're going to follow a similar pattern for each of the areas they want to focus on. We'll do a quick landscape that includes some of SG2's expectations and forecasts. Then we're going to get into the operational details of how to make it real and where organizations are finding areas of opportunity. Riota, I know one area you wanted to talk about was hip fracture. Give us the landscape, please. Thanks, Trevor. For hip fracture, in the past, SG2, we've been optimistic at times that maybe prevention, management efforts would be spurred by population health, dye-based care. Unfortunately, really implementing these initiatives effectively at scale has continued to be a challenge. Not saying that these aren't worth pursuing. We're looking at the data, seeing whether they're going to have a large enough impact to offset the effects of aging population and really population-driven growth. Over the next decade from 2019-2029, SG2 still projects a 12% growth in inpatient admissions for this population. It's a rare inpatient growth area for orthopedics considering the outpatient shift of elective joints. Joe, as providers prepare for this continued inpatient admission growth and hip fractures, what are some of the key quality and cost opportunities to focus on? Thanks, Ryota. You mentioned two really key areas there from the standpoint of hip fractures. One is that the growth is going to continue to occur. And secondly, these patients are going to continue to be in the inpatient environment. The other important part to remember is that for hip fractures, the mortality rate for these patients at one year is 30%. Let's define the population first. This is a group generally 65 and older, osteoporosis, and probably three quarters of them are women that have either fallen and broken their hip or their hip breaks and they fall. As we begin to look at hospital and health system information, we see a lot of hospitals and health systems that have long length of stays, high readmission rates that they can start looking at. And probably the biggest opportunity is first looking at length of stay. Most hospitals are doing a lot of work in this area they want the length of stay to be four days and less. And what you have to do to get there is to think about what processes do I have in place? The person comes in to the emergency department, we would like them ideally to get to surgery within 12 to 18 hours of when they're admitted. You have to make sure that the patient's diagnosed, that orthopedics is on board, they're cleared for surgery, that the OR is ready. We find that if the patients sit around for greater than a day, two days, we start seeing the outcomes go downhill. Joe, what are the opportunities after surgery, perioperatively? 
to continue with that framework of that four-day length of stay, what then has to happen is when the patient gets done with surgery, the best care is to get them back to their normal routine as quickly as possible. When they get up to the room, make sure that they're up and starting to walk, making sure that they assume their normal diet, those types of things are all critical to get them discharged at that four-day time period. And then kind of after we've taken care of them, once they're discharged at home, what's the opportunities there? Traditionally, 80% of these patients that have hip fractures are discharged either to a skilled nursing home or to a rehab center. What we're seeing now is hospitals have realized that there are a certain percentage of patients that can be discharged at home with organized home health care. Surprisingly, what's happening in the literature is people are seeing that patients discharged to home are having lower readmission rates. They're having better long-term outcomes. As we look at the episode of care cost, it's also a less costly environment than them going to a rehab center or to a skilled nursing facility. The other part that's changed that is COVID. And if my mom or dad had a hip fracture uh, during COVID and they're in the hospital, there's enough risk right there. I would not want them to have been discharged to a skilled nursing facility. I would want them to come home. I would be there, family members, home health care, whatever we could to avoid that based upon what was happening in skilled nursing facilities. So that also has created this mind shift of patients more to home health care. Yeah, it's one of those where we're seeing that transformation in care happen as we're seeing the providers and patients and family react to the pandemic as well. Joe, final question for you on this topic. As we're thinking about the resources needed to really achieve those opportunities that you mentioned, is there a degree of service distribution that's needed? Hospitals are organizing into health systems. And typically in a metropolitan area, there's a distribution of these hospitals around different communities. Taking care of hip fracture patients should be done most likely in a community-based hospital that is a relatively larger size. As a healthcare system, what you have to look at is to say, what hospitals, maybe it's three of the seven hospitals in the system that we really want to organize a hip fracture care if geographically we can serve all of our patients. I've absolutely seen in some bigger academic medical centers that have heavy trauma programs that the hip fracture patient isn't going there. Those patients are going to those community-based hospitals where there can be more focus on their area of care. How are the dynamics different when it's an elective hip procedure? Ryota, can you give us the landscape and then we'll get some more great operational insights from Joe? That's a great question because we're for hip replacement in particular, we get to see two sides of the coin, the hip fracture versus kind of the osteoarthritis driven elective population. This is the one where we're talking about outpatient shift, really that rapid transformation that we've seen over the last 12, 18 months and counting. First hip replacement came off the inpatient only list in 2020. That unlocked a lot of cases to be at least labeled as outpatient. And then the pandemic, that's what really changed that clinical transformation where providers trying to minimize the time that patients stay in the hospital setting, minimize risk of infection, reduce the length of stay rapidly. And when we're tracking the data, one of the hospital data sets we have access to saw a jump to 45% of hip replacement cases being performed as an outpatient by the end of 2020. Our forecast projects well over 50% of them nationally being performed as an outpatient, just even in this year. We say outpatient, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they left the hospital. It just means that they're getting discharged when to midnight. So thinking about that departure to maybe that true ambulatory shift, this is one where for those that have experience performing these cases safely 
in an ASB or ambulatory setting. Lots of growth is what we hear from those providers. And then some that are really pushing the boundaries of what patient population be eligible for an ambulatory case. We're hearing that instead of looking for indications or patient selection criteria, they're starting to move to a mindset of focusing on contraindications, almost assuming that all patients can be done potentially in an ambulatory setting and then looking for reasons why they would not be appropriate rather than maybe looking for the right patients for ambulatory. So, so definitely that's pushing the boundaries a bit, but it's a remarkable turnaround of kind of mindset as well as reality underground over the last year and a half. On the horizon in the ASC, we see that mostly commercial patients shift out there to, to date and commercial payers are aware of that too. So we're starting to hear that rates are coming down in the ASC as traditionally they were thinking of shifting to ASC That'd be a way to save costs between hospital-based rates versus ASC. But now that they're already in ASC, we're seeing some price pressure there. With that in mind, internal cost opportunities, as well as savings across the episode, will be really important for our listeners. You hit on a key point. This movement of knee replacement and especially hip replacement to outpatient had been going on, and then COVID really accelerated that. Surgeons really got down to business of saying, okay, if they begin to shut down hospitals again for elective surgeries, I want my ambulatory surgery center to be able to do these cases so that I can continue to serve my patients. That's been a big part of it. The other part, so as elective hip replacement, the less time you're in the hospital, the more prepared you're going to need to be. Because now you as the patient and your family are taking on more of that care post-surgery. So patient education is going to be and continues to be absolutely huge in this area. Riota, the surgeons that five years ago, 10 years ago, had really started to do hip and knee replacement on the outpatient basis, they really have now gotten to the point where it's honed in. What happens the day of surgery, getting the patients home, all of the procedural components of that, they really have zeroed in on this. And now where I think that opportunity is in that episode of care, we're seeing more patients instead of having extensive home care or outpatient physical therapy, it's a combination of outpatient physical therapy and maybe virtual physical therapy through an app. We're seeing more patient education being done through different virtual settings in an app, that communication between the patient and their family to the surgeon through these vehicles is important to be able to send a question or a picture, anything along that line, so that we can make as safe as possible that time period from surgery till about 14 days afterwards and beyond. As we're thinking about this transformation, and these surgeons certainly are comfortable about performing these more in the laboratory setting, what's the pair provider dynamic that's changing? Let's go back to this group of surgeons that five, 10 years ago and have really again, done a lot of outpatient hip and knee replacements. One of the hallmarks of those surgeons beyond what they've done from a technical perspective is to understand all aspects of their care, what their outcomes are, the complications, patient selection, and the total cost of care, and the patient's long-term outcomes. Armed with that information, they now have taken this group of patients, and it now becomes a known entity. So now they can proactively go to payers and look at some of these more advanced payment arrangements, such as bundle payment, where the payer will pay for the surgeon fee, anesthesiology fee, the facility fee, and also the post-discharge care elements of it, because they're armed with data. 
For the group of surgeons or health systems that are just starting with this right now, I would highly encourage you to make sure you're collecting all of that information so that then you can position yourself for some of these future programs, whether they are voluntary or it's something that the payer pushes down upon you so that then you're ready and you understand what your margins are in that place. The other part that I'll add from the standpoint of understanding the margins, there is new technologies coming through, especially in hip replacement, dual mobility hips. We see some more advanced surfaces that help bony ingrowth to the implants. Um, there's always sitting out there the technology of robotics. Before you can really even understand what's the implication of technology, big or small, you have to understand what's the clinical impact, the financial impact, and what is the market driving forces behind that. The starting point of that is you have to know your current outcomes, finances, and your market position. You've got to understand those before you can then think about some of these newer technologies coming through. Yeah, definitely important considerations as we're thinking about that patient care transformation as well as your dynamics between surgeon providers with payers. You mentioned, Joe, that scope that these surgeons have to now really make sure that they're on top of. And we see also the formation of supergroups out there. How does the dynamic between health system versus physician groups evolving in your eyes? In some of the supergroups, they have absolutely figured out a way from the standpoint of their office services, from the rehabilitation perspective of it, pre-surgical services, and also ambulatory surgery centers on how to really do this entire episode of care. There are supergroups out there that are still partnering with major health systems to look at all aspects of that. And if I'm a health system out there right now, I don't think it's too late to begin to look at some extensive partnerships with different surgeon groups in this area. It's not coming back into the hospital. You have to recognize that. And I think there's real opportunity still in parts of the country for partnership in this area. Last joint we'll focus on, how about shoulders? I'm imagining there's some similarities and some differences there. What's going on in shoulder replacement? Shoulder replacement is something that we've really emphasized the growth opportunity here as we've seen a really rapid and consistent growth rate over the last decade, I think doubled in volume over the last eight years. And Joe certainly can talk to more about what was driving a lot of that changes in terms of technological advances, all the clinical advances. But it's one that we still see quite a bit of growth opportunity there going the next 10 years from 2019-2029, 80% growth. A couple of things that's different here, though, is that a large proportion of this is actually Medicare patients. Only 27% are actually commercially insured. Think of this as an older population. The lengths of stay for these cases are really low, but thinking about that patient population, it might have a few more barriers as we're thinking about more of an ambulatory shift. One other thing to add is that really there's a little bit of policy with last year. 2021, shoulder replacement came off the Medicare inpatient only list. And then a few months ago, Medicare actually proposed to put it back on the inpatient only list starting 2022. It wasn't really targeting shoulder replacement specifically, but it was really a broader change of philosophy as we change administrations this year. We'll see whether shoulder replacement remains off the inpatient only list. I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of shoulder replacement surgeons who were very excited about the prospect of doing these cases in ambulatory surgery centers or in hospital outpatient centers. There probably is a little bit of frustration whenever that got pulled back. However, there's a tremendous amount of growth going on in shoulder replacement right now. Those surgeons really want to have very organized processes in place as they do these surgeries. 
the attitude of the surgeons and health systems right now are no different than seven, 10 years ago. Hip and knee replacement surgeons were working in the hospitals, doing these cases, trying to figure out how do we continue to improve all of these processes. I hope the shoulder surgeons think about this. Now we've got a bonus year, a gap year to really work through that. They should be doing things similar to what the hip and knee replacement surgeons did a few years back. In other words, establish your pathways, get that set up, make sure that you have very consistent discharge instructions, home care, outpatient physical therapy, and collecting, again, the outcomes information. What are the care outcomes? What are the long-term patient-reported outcomes? What's the financial outcomes? There will come a point in time that these cases will be done on more of an outpatient basis. Those that have the data win and being able to take that year and really organize it around a one-year, two-year period of cases is really going to help to set you up for both patients in the community as well as payers. As we're thinking about kind of like diving into the data there, Joe, I think you were part of, we're looking at the cost and margin for some of these cases, even on the inpatient side. Can you speak a little bit more towards the impact of the different approaches, implants, and the margins? One of the difficult areas is that there's one DRG from Medicare and one payment, and most payers will piggyback off of some percentage of that Medicare payment rate. Well, you've got two different procedures being done, an anatomic shoulder replacement and a reverse shoulder replacement. Now we're starting to see 80-some percent of the cases being reverse shoulder replacement, and in general, the implant cost for that is probably $2,000 to $2,500 above an anatomic shoulder replacement. I'm hoping that through all of this, Medicare will begin to look at what the cost is for these reverse shoulder replacements and look at maybe some payment rates a little bit different for reverse and anatomic shoulder replacements. It's all based upon the resource utilization. That's going to be a big part of the ability of these cases to be moved into outpatient settings. That's definitely a good point, especially the reimbursement side. We did an analysis and found that between the DRG payment and 2021, it's called the 5115 Ambulatory Payment Classification, or APC, that they grouped the shoulder replacements under. The rate difference was about $3,000 less on the outpatient side. So even though the surgeons might be ready to be performing this on an outpatient basis, the Medicare payment didn't seem to be ready for that yet. Yeah, I've seen situations where the cost of the implant on a reverse shoulder replacement is upwards of 65, 70% of the total reimbursement. If those reimbursement rates drop down, and they will at the ambulatory surgery center, then you're just starting to see the margin getting gobbled up. If I was a patient and I'm getting close to 65, if in four or five years I need a shoulder replacement, I would much rather have that done at an ambulatory surgery center and come home that night. Final thoughts here, Joe, for shoulder replacement. Is this something that you see take off as rapidly as hip and knees did after their policy restrictions came off? Or is there some other nuance that you foresee coming? No, I, I think for shoulder replacement, you do have a niche of surgeons that are looking to do more and more cases. If I go back five years, a busy shoulder replacement surgeon would be doing 50 of those cases per year, along with other types of shoulder surgeries. I'm now dealing with or interacting with shoulder replacement surgeons that are doing 150, 200, 250 shoulder replacements per year. As those surgeons continue to refine what they're doing, you're going to have the ability to set up some of these niche specialty programs in hospital outpatient departments or in ambulatory surgery centers, specifically around shoulder replacement. Well, Riota and Joe, thanks for going in three slightly different directions, but I heard some similar themes. 
Any kind of umbrella closing comments that you want to have? If you're a health system out there, you still have a lot of opportunities with some of those inpatient procedures, shoulder replacement, hip fractures, of really developing programs and improving care quality margin, all of those aspects of it. If you're a hospital health system and you're starting to see more of this moving out of your hospital, orthopedics, there's still great opportunity to partner with different physician groups throughout this to really build programs in some of these areas around hip and knee replacement. If we think about some of the orthopedic supergroups out there, kudos to them for all the work they've done on really spending the time collecting all of this information that years ago they would say, I'm collecting all this information. I'm not sure why we need it. Now they're understanding why they need that. Most of those groups are happy of all the processes they put in place to collect that information. It's been paying off for them as they look at these relationships with payers and others. Riotta and Joe, thanks so much for sharing your perspective on where some of these procedures are going and some of the things that are going to allow our members to take advantage of those growth opportunities. Look forward to having you both on SG2 Perspectives again soon. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>